Welcome to Part of the Story, Read Your Public Library's official podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Claire Brown, and today I'm pleased to be joined by co-host Shannon LaRondelle. Hi, Shannon. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right today. <laughs> I feel a little scattered, to be quite honest. I'm excited about our topic today, but I feel like I'm, I'm not as prepared as I'd like to be. So we'll see how this rolls. <laughs> so when Shannon and I were talking about what should we talk about in March, we thought, let's talk about women authors or authors who identify as women or female. And it sort of goes hand in hand with, I think it's International Women's History Month, is it not? But it's also International Women's Day, which is the 8th of March, I do believe. So that's tomorrow. tomorrow. We are recording on the 7th. Hopefully this is up tomorrow. But if not, happy belated International Women's Day to all of our listeners. So sort of to get in the mood for our discussion that we have coming up, we thought we would just give a little bit of a brief overview of what International Women's Day is, where it came from, all of that good stuff. So uh, first of all, International Women's Day, and this is from an article from the BBC News. Um, So International Women's Day grew out of the labor movement to become an annual event recognized by the United Nations. The seeds were planted as early as 1908, when 15,000 women marched through New York, demanding shorter working hours, better pay, and the right to vote. So basically out of the women's suffrage. Wow, 15,000. Yeah, can you imagine? And like, this is pre, obviously, pre-social media. So this is like word of mouth, people bringing their friends, family, coworkers, et cetera. Like that is a proper movement. So it wasn't formalized until a wartime strike in 1917. It had been sort of observed since 1911, but it didn't have a fixed date. It wasn't like, oh, March 8th is the day. Um, So Mm. the strike began uh, when Russian women demanded bread and peace for four days, and the Tsar was forced to abdicate, and the uh, the provisional government granted women the right to vote. That strike began on the 8th of March, and this became the date of International Women's Day, which is a little bit of an interesting history. Um, I didn't realize, and this is obviously it's on really me, exciting. right? Like, change can happen. You don't think that you're affecting change in the moment. I'm sure all of those people wanted change, but it didn't, you know, it probably seemed very far away. And we always think now... Oh, what, what am I going to do? My little corner. I, my voice isn't big enough. My, you know, platform isn't large enough, et cetera, et cetera, but it doesn't matter. Like really you can have the power. So Shannon, did you realize that every year they have a theme for International Women's Day? There's a theme that the UN decides on. Are you aware of this? I did not know that. I also did not know that, but thank you again to this BBC article. Apparently, the UN announced the theme for the 2022 International Women's Day as gender equality today for a sustainable tomorrow. So it's interesting, especially when you think about what the pandemic has done to women in the workforce. We know that women are primarily the caregivers for families and children. And when their children had to be home, had to be from school from home, a lot of women did leave the workforce. Um, 
in this article as well, it goes on to say that the coronavirus pandemic has continued to have an impact on women's rights. According to the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report from 2021, the time needed to close the gender gap has increased by a generation from 99.5 years to now 135.6 years. So basically, um, and I have read other articles that suggested that we've lost everything that we've gained since the mid eighties in terms of women in the workforce. And so to sort of see it in black and white here, um, quoting the economic uh, forums gender gap report, it's kind of astonishing. It sort of makes you take a, a little bit of a stutter there because you think that the, the momentum could just sort of keep rolling forward, but it, it, it doesn't. I, it's a tough one for me. I noticed on, I followed on Twitter a couple of people that were talking about um, how when their school was calling home to say that their child was ill and, and a parent needed to come and get them, that even though maybe the, the dad, um, male parent was listed as the first contact and please call this first as mom had a career that didn't facilitate, let's say, or whatever the reason in the family was that the, the dad should be called first. Many, many, many times that was overruled and the mom was called, even though her phone number was listed, maybe several, several lines down. Um, it was sort of a bias on, on behalf of the, the school that was calling, um, traditionally the mom is called your child is sick come pick it up yeah <laughs> but they were it's totally uh, true definitely struggling with that saying even though we put our name as that and that's how we want to be you know called it it wasn't respected so it's a very interesting situation we have for sure and I think it's hard for institutions to change their normal too right I'm sure many of those um you know, great school professionals are used to primarily dealing with the quote unquote mom in the household or, and for them to see that, I mean, some of them might assume it's a mistake. Some of them might be more comfortable calling the mom, some of them, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the reasons go on, but they are likely steeped in some former societal norms that maybe no longer have a place. And it just goes to show how deeply entrenched you know, women are with children and family that even if you say explicitly, call me third, call me third, I don't have a job that I can leave, I'm not available, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, it's just no, we're going to call the mom. We're going to call the mom. It's unconscious. And I yeah. think some of that is, it's not a choice. It's not saying, oh, look at, they chose the dad. <laughs> Silly yeah. them. I'm, you know, I'm going to override know better. that. Yeah. I don't think that's it, honestly. And maybe it is in that, in some people's case, I don't know. But I honestly think we all walk around with that um, unknown bias. And it, yeah. it's very, it's very hard to recognize it when it's happening if you don't even know. Like, yeah, that to me is a little bit scary. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, talking about the Women's History Month and, and the International Day and women who have come together um, in the past to have their momentum sort of be struck down because of a pandemic. Man, that's telling on a lot of different levels, isn't it? Yeah. Boy. 
And I mean, it's not just women who've had their participation in the workforce be precarious during the pandemic. We know that mm-hmm. lower income people of color, et cetera, have experienced um, this shift, this sad shift during the pandemic. Um, but we don't want, we neither of us are experts, so we're not going to no. get too, too deep in it. And just when we were having conversations and, and thinking about what it means and, you know, thinking about books and how much they mean to us, we wanted to sort of highlight some pioneer women in the library world. And those women are authors, um, people that perhaps have been overshadowed or, or less celebrated because when they were writing, it was, you know, ooh, taboo, like, or women that had to hide their identity because you can't read yeah. a book by a woman. Like how, like, nobody wants to read that. Like, so we thought we'd get a little bit into the history of, well, Shannon's going to lead the next part of um, <laughs> a published author. And then we're going to go through some female <laughs> authors who have made history just sort of celebrating women, women's history and International Women's Day. So stay, stay tuned for all of this. <laughs> and forgive us if we make foibles or if we misstate. It is not our intention, but we are fallible humans. <laughs> we are open to education too. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yes, please reach out to us right. if uh, we have gone astray on any one point. <laughs> yes, please correct. Absolutely. Um, so when I was doing some research for this topic, I came across um, a timeline of the, the different publications of authors. I think women have been writing since the since beginning writing. of the written word. Exactly. And, I, and they just didn't get the same credit that men did for all the reasons um but the first one and it's a north america thing um her name was anne bradstreet and in 1650 she published poems um she may not have been able to do that if she were back um in her mainland um but because the colonies were new and they were all like you know trying new things and being exciting <laughs> i think that gave her the opportunity to actually publish there and she's very religious as most women were Puritans she of was the time <laughs> yes well, exactly and that probably was one of the reasons why she got published as well right the, the yeah. content was her own but all ensconced safely within the greater religious <clears throat> acceptance, right? Um, but she was a little bit of a rebel. And so she, her stuff was less puritanical than what was current at the time. So I think that's why she kind of sticks out a little bit because not only was she just the first to be published, which was rebellious enough in itself, but also her views about religion were a little bit more broad and, and open and I think that was new. So I have a little bit of a tiny poem. Her poems were really long. So it, it was hard for me to find something that was a little bit shorter. But I thought it was a little bit interesting, just the way she speaks. Um, so I have one to read for you. They're not titled. So it just is what it is. Uh, and it goes, 
To all you've said, sad mother, I assent. Your fearful sins, great chance there's no lament. My guilty hands in part hold with you, a sharer in your punishments, my due. But all you say amounts to this effect, not what you feel, but what you do expect. Pray in plain terms what is your present grief, then let's join hands and hearts for your relief. It's just kind of fun. She's got interesting words. The way it was printed in the book, all the S's were F's. And so I had to go through and <laughs> change it. So I, I, I was curious as to how they would actually pronounce the words like as they were speaking. So that still has my mind a little bit. I tried. I tried to say it with all the F's and it was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not an expert, but that seems that poem seems to suggest that she is speaking to her mother or if if indeed you know more religious context perhaps the mother like the mother like you know mary agree um and speaking directly to what is what am i supposed to be doing how like tell me clearly the path that i'm supposed to be on because i don't know and a woman writing at that time I imagine would grapple with a lot of sort of, you know, social stigma and stereotype of like, you know, too smart, too learned, too many ideas. Like, why does she need these ideas? Um, So you think that she probably comes from a place of privilege. I mean, she can read and write um, in the 1600s, which for a woman interesting in and of itself so i have a little tidbit that i learned about that women who could read and write at that age and that time were ugly and i use that in air quotations because i like unmarriageable basically that's exactly right so the fathers who were for learned and whatever i think her dad was an irish priest but decided that she would not be able to be married. There was and therefore no taking care of. Yeah. So therefore she should get an education because that would help her best. And I, I thought that was so interesting. She had to, to it's sort of backhanded that. though, isn't it? Punishment. Like yeah. <laughs> you can learn, but it's only because I believe that no man will ever take care of you based on how you look. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was a little bit of a uh, nasty way of being educated back in the day. So. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> I didn't like that very much, but yeah, it was definitely something that was part of their, um, um, not their mystique, I guess, but the, the reason like, and they had, not all of them had that, but I think that was a common thread. Um, like you said, for the times, right? You are either yeah. beautiful and marriable um, you had good uh, childbearing hips or whatever <laughs> the same goes. And, uh, or you could read and write and you were a school teacher or whatever you were. Right? Yeah, so, governess, something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, those career, those aspirations that <laughs> were clearly defined for us, right? Back in the day. <laughs> it's, it's so, so true. And it's so interesting because when you think about classics and literature that we study now, that is, you know, the oldest literature that we can sort of get our hands on. And, and we think of all of that. And we think of all of the male writers that we know and that are celebrated and talked about. And, you know, you reread their plays, you see adaptations again and again and again. 
And yet reading now, I don't think authorship is the same, but reading now has certainly become quite gendered in terms of who's more likely to read, who's less likely to read. And I just, I wonder when that shift happened because the readership way back when all of these authors were first being published or their little, you know, weeklies were coming out, you have to imagine the largest readership was male because they had more access to education. So it's just, it's Mm -hmm. an interesting thought that I've had and I haven't looked too deeply in it, but when, when does that shift happen? I do wonder when somehow it becomes less manly to read and you know, all of that, because now it's, it's very like, it's very unlikely to find young boys that like to read or teenage boys that like to read. And we're not talking about for school or for, you know, whatever, for pleasure, reading for pleasure. And when you look at what sells now in the publishing world, romance is a juggernaut. That readership is female, obviously. So it's just, it's very interesting to me about when that shift may have really occurred. I'm rusty on this, but I remember reading the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg biography, and she definitely spoke about a time, and just before her time, where that was a that was a thing, where where it became sort of common for women to read. Um, of course, she went to law school, and she was one of the first of her kind there. Um, so, when and when would that be? I'm trying to put a timeline like in my head. Probably 60s. Yeah, when she, yeah, so even, I guess, maybe it was wartime. Is that so bold to to discover? Because things shifted if any of for our, women. If any of our listenership knows, please yeah. let us know. Obviously, Shannon and I are probably going to deep dive into this because we're interested. But you, we never know where these conversations will take us. But if someone out there in listenership land knows, please let us know. Uh, Love hearing it. Although, yeah, you're right. There's a huge shift, particularly during World War II, in terms of women entering the workforce. And, you know, I mean, still obviously having home duties and whatnot, but maybe having some, you know, quote unquote, freer time in the 60s and 70s where husbands perhaps were more present with children and women had time to you know, get an education in a different way or read for pleasure or, or do any of those things. I just, you think about how different the world is over a hundred years. And then you think about this author publishing in the mid 1600s and what that, like what that would have meant. Like we're talking about 400 years ago. It's mind boggling. She she wasn't even trying to uh, publish something that was um, uh, controversial. Ra- yeah, like radical. Yeah. Right after her. So who who would that be? Like Mary Wollstonecraft. She started to publish feminist literature in 1720. Like, whoa, like, that's a big deal. We've gone from prayers to now feminist literature. And I think, wow, that's a huge step. And that was in a hundred years. So interestingly enough, you know, they, they've advanced quite spectacularly. Uh, Although to my mind, uh, over a hundred years seems way too painfully slow. Yeah, I agree. The cogs are just so slow. 
for well, change, just but going, it's not with everything. Yeah. Just going back to Mary uh, Wollstonecraft for a moment, her, they call it a pamphlet, uh, was called mm-hmm. A Vindication on the Rights of Women and is considered to be one of the most significant works of the early feminist movement. So yeah, when you think about how long ago these seeds were planted and if you can imagine the radicalness of that publication and the how she was probably ostracized from societies but again you know had a daughter that again broke rules and stereotypes for horror and sci-fi um her daughter being mary shelley famously of the frankenstein um book uh but it's it's outrageous it's it's just crazy and it's sort of sorry go ahead so that was in in 1792 right and so you think about that okay so Anne Bradstreet was 1650 with her poems and then um next significantly is 1929 the Virginia Woolf era right yeah and the, the room of one's own and that I think that was sort of the place marker there um to to make that a little more mainstream you think I don't know or more accepted like that, that yeah yeah have yeah. women who had popular success not just you know 100 years later when we were like oh we should have been paying attention to this writer uh but like contemporary success people knew that name people you know read read her this is sort of perfect so I was inspired by Shannon when we were talking about this and I found such a cool list from Bustle and it's called 13 female authors who have made history so we've already discussed a couple of them which is Anne Bradstreet Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley, but I don't think we can have a conversation, Shannon, especially knowing as our listeners do about how we feel about romance. I mean, Jane Austen. The conversation has to come back. Frankenstein itself is a romance, you could argue. You could. In a different way. (laughs) With less less of a happy ending than perhaps us category romancers expect. Fair fair but we're talking about early craft so you know not so bad exactly but when you think about genre literature and how it was created we think about romance you think about horror sci-fi you have the Mary Shelley's of the world you think about romance you have Jane Austen detective fiction you have authors like you know Agatha Christie there are a lot of female pioneers not to even mention the countless number of sci-fi authors that published under either pseudonyms or initials because no, you know, 13-year-old boy wants to read a space story written by a woman because uh, obviously women don't know. But when you think about, yeah, the Jane Austens of the world and the staying power of those stories and those stories becoming tropes that are still utilized to this day, you know, a reunion romance like Persuasion or, a, you know, grumpy sunshine, uh, like Pride and Prejudice type of thing. So all of these things are still used. And these are women characters in Jane Austen creating futures for themselves in a very unconventional way. If you think about the um, 
Elizabeth Bennett, even Emma, who goes around, flitting around, trying to make matches for everybody. And it's, it's a completely different story. You have Anne Elliott from Persuasion, who has you know been constant all these years, but was trying to do the right thing by her family and, and gets her second chance with uh, her Captain Wentworth. That one's my favorite, by the way. <laughs> but like these are stories that I imagine were radical of the time of women basically getting the best of life. Everything that they could have wanted gets manifested in their life because they deserve it, because they make it happen, because, because, because. I don't know, Shannon, how do you feel about it? Well, I think that in itself is a little bit unheard of, right? It's through the lens of what a woman wants and yeah. what she aspires to for herself. That's bizarre because it it's usually from that from that era, it's all about what the man would like and how the woman fits in with his vision for his own future and what his life is going to be like. And would she, you know, um, accept being part of that as yeah, there's you know, the no good, beautiful wife. It, it's a different lens completely when you go from the perspective of the woman and what she would like, and then to go after it. Whoa. Independence, anyone? Wow. <laughs> But when you think of all the women characters, and even now, I think some authors struggle with it, with women not being a full character. They're there to service the plot or story based on an archetype or caricature. And when you look at some of the early writings of particularly women authors who realized that it turns out women are people too, and there's <laughs> thoughts and feelings and motivations and you know, obligations and everything, there is a well-rounded character that can happen to be a woman. And we can take her story, her narration, her thoughts, her feelings, her fears, etc., and they can be on par with the male characters of the story. And it's it's just fine. Because on it's par real. or better. Yeah, or more important, yeah, depending on how yeah. it's written. It's like, no, we're looking at it from this person's perspective, the end. So I don't, I just think. And I also think, too, it's part of the vulnerability factor. Like, I think women were afraid to be real women for a long time because all of the things that made us women were either messy or um, wouldn't men didn't find that part of the woman attractive it's all based from the man's perspective of course right yeah and I think that's part of it when you are writing a complete woman character um there's a lot that goes into that there's a lot of different stuff that you get to add and and use and and actually must to, for it to be a full wonderful character and, and that takes skill and not that uh, um male author can't do it but I don't know have you ever read some of the books that you think oh my god is this written by a man and sure enough <laughs> thinking, how did I know like how did you just know and I think the reverse is true maybe you you don't know who's written your book and then you're like, oh, and you find out maybe it's different than you thought but 
there has been times and I have had, I've read a couple of romance stories and they were in fact written by men. I thought, mm, I figured you out. <laughs> but I don't know why. Like you can't really specifically pinpoint why, but I think it speaks to what you just said, Claire, that the character isn't as full and rounded as it could be. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of characters like women, female characters, if they're emotional, if they have outbursts, like even if you read it, see it, you know, whatever it's that person is unhinged. They are <laughs> not like, so Crazy. it makes me, yeah, it makes me wonder about this caricature of women being sort of unstable when there was sort of a catch all for women ending up in, you know, asylums, you know, during, you know, 1700s, 1800s, early 19s, where it would just be like, oh, well, she's hysterical. Like, mm-hmm. we, we don't know why, just hysterical. So if it's happening at that level in terms of like medical care, obviously in contemporary novels, poems, etc., written during those times, like the male authors who are experiencing fame, glory, etc., are not like, you know what, guys, women are full characters too. Let's examine <laughs> from their perspective. So when you have someone as popular in her time as Jane Austen, who is writing stories of female characters from their perspective, basically manifesting the best outcomes possible for their lives during that time. It's amazing and we still know her name we still read those books like authors are still inspired by those works however I read a little bit of something something about her and she was not able to publish normally like her male counterparts would she had to publish on commission only Uh and so then she they estimate she only maybe earned a quarter of the possibilities um, that she could have earned had she published with her male traditional. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that goes to show because there wasn't a history of, or a long enough history, I guess, of successful female authors who were given the opportunity to stand with their contemporary male counterparts that her writing these stories was a huge um, chance that the publisher was taking that they would outlay anything to yeah. print, promote, distribute. Because if you looked at that title page and you saw a woman's name, would you think, oh, well, she's hysterical. Like, <laughs> who is this? Wealthy. There's the important piece, I think, that is important to our discussion here today. Is it the merit of just being a female author and the fact that you are a female presenting your work? Or is it the content, like you just said, yeah. presenting females who are endeavoring to have their own futures and independence? That in itself could be way more scary than the fact that you're just a female author and I mean just in the nicest of ways but do you know what I mean I think that that is worth looking at in any of these authors is that were they just female or was it because the content of their work was so um disarming for men at the time oh I think totally I think if 
like, let's take Jane Austen again as the example. If she were writing stories that we expected of women, meek women, subservient uh, women, that sort of vibe, you know, non-3D women, women that had one characteristic, basically uh, Mrs. Bennett. (laughs) In every single book, the character was just Mrs. Bennett. Would we know Jane Austen's name today? So... I, I argue if, if she wrote meek, mild characters that just conform to the status quo, would more men purchase her works for their wives? <laughs> Who drove that, right? Would she yeah. have been more, more successful? successful during the time, but right? less remembered wonder, by future generations? Right. Yeah. So I wonder about that because the men had the money to yeah. buy the book. So it's true. Either, you know, these women really wanted these stories and and came about them in all the ways and it was still wildly successful, which is in itself an extra, you know, accomplishment. Yeah. Or, you know, um, yeah, I just, I think it's so funny that the longevity piece speaks the best for me in that one is that we still know her. We still know who she, what she wrote in the characters and the stories and they make TV shows still about that. And even, you know, spinoffs, what Bridgerton or or whatever, right? Like it's all inspired by franchise. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I think that's her success right there. It's brilliant. It's a legacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right about that. I think you're right but I want to say I don't I'm I know you're moving on your list of 13 but she did not use a pseudonym which no. I think is interesting so many came after her that did use pseudonyms so I find I, I'm curious about that piece how was I think it she, she had more standing not? in society I I don't think her mm-hmm. family was you know destitute well the fact okay. that she was able to write suggests that she had some free time. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that her family, I think her brothers in particular were supportive, judging from uh, some things that I've read about the Austin family. So yeah, I do think that she was a woman of a certain privilege. I mean, you're still a woman in yes. in yeah those days, but yeah. you did have a certain privilege, I think. And yeah, so I don't, it's just interesting. Love it. um so mary shelley obviously we know her love her frankenstein is widely considered to be the first ever uh, sci-fi novel um and when you think about that when you think about starting a genre (laughs) that is and was dominated by men moving forward really in a lot of ways um the readership being largely male, I do believe. Um, The authors who are celebrated, largely male. But we're talking about a young woman, a very young woman, um, writing this, you know, basically horror sci-fi, gruesome at the time. I can only imagine how it was received by the audience when they were like, this is a woman? This is a young woman? What sort of Again, what is wrong with her? Who is looking after her? (laughs) What are we? What are we doing about it? The content just in itself was probably very inexplicable. 
Mm -hmm. right? Like I mean, that, that's a new topic, that whole, you know, bringing life to inanimate things or, or whatever, right? Like yeah. that, that's pretty cool in its own. Um, that's pretty neat, but to, yes. And then to have that extra layer of, Oh, a woman wrote this. Like, I don't know. Was it to their credit? I wonder like, what was the, like we also ramifications around that. It's so true. And the, like, so Frankenstein is the doctor for those who don't know. I think we oftentimes equate Frankenstein with the monster, but the monster is Frankenstein's monster. And it's, like the, I hate saying monster, but the monster is a sympathetic creature, a creature that does not have really will or place of their own. And you do wonder a little bit if, if the author felt that way, not having place or will of one's own and not belonging when you're um, sort of, you want to be a writer, you want to be a creator of things. And you look around and your contemporaries are they don't look like you necessarily, <laughs> or they maybe don't take you as seriously as they would your male counterpart. So I do think that the vulnerability and the compassion at which the monster is shown, I think that that is signaturely female and I can't explain why. <laughs> uh, I, I get the not being able to explain it, but I totally agree with that metaphor. And I even think the monster metaphor of being not uh, this different monster pieces not, like, barely held together. Yeah. But it is the metaphor for the whole woman. Yeah. Not even the female author, just women in general, I think misunderstood. Um, I'm just grappling for viewed here, as but... emotional, hysterical, yes. unable to make and... their way in the world without someone as their companion. Like, yeah, no, not even cool. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and 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 the the view, everyone being very upset about it, and that that all plays out. It all fits for that being as a mega metaphor for just women in general. I think it's brilliant. I just, I can't get over like Mary Shelley being as young as she was. I want to say she was between 16 and 20 when she wrote yeah. Frankenstein. And when you think about the lasting power of it, the horror aspects, the sci-fi aspects, the absolute just imagination of the story, it's just, it's incredible. And like, what am I doing with my life 20 years <laughs> older than she is? <laughs> Well, I think to be fair to you, but also things like that, um, they're very much, they have their, their uh, success because of the time in, in, in the world that it happened, right? So um, it's like the Mona Lisa, not too great shakes, but for the time the subject in its in its um in its day was huge right yeah. so uh i think a lot of the stuff that we are talking about is because of when it happened um not necessarily to whom but when in in the the continuum of women in society in general um that's that's the lovely parts i think um that's what the the fame not not being 
nasty to to any of the works at all that's not my point there <laughs> it's just that they have their own success and their own rights but they also can have more success because of where they fit in the timeline yeah. it's it's so true it's yeah it's very very true so we briefly touched on Agatha Christie, but Agatha Christie is the best-selling novelist in history. Um, she's known for her sleuth Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot. I mean, just last month, a new Hercule Poirot adaptation in the theaters, you know, these many, many, many years after her. Um, and it says the only works that have sold more than hers are Shakespeare's works and the Bible. Oh, wow. So wow. that's why she gets the best-selling novelist in history award. And obviously some of these authors are very products of their time. And Agatha Christie can be seen as a controversial figure based on some of the previous titles of her books, some of the mm -hmm. language that was used because it was it was the language of the day right or wrong it was the language of the day so through a contemporary lens we can see things as more problematic than they were seen you know 100 years ago when she was starting to publish but you have to just sit in awe for a moment that a woman created two detectives that had so many stories books love readership that she is the best-selling novelist in history and and not novelist of a genre just novelist yeah that's impressive. yeah not best-selling mystery novelist she is the no. best-selling novelist wow. it's amazing it's hard to wrap your head me, around it makes me feel like i haven't quite read her stuff enough <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad for that. If you're the best-selling novelist, then yeah, I probably should have read more than three. <laughs> but again, like, you know, her novels are primarily in the mystery genre. Um, so if the genre doesn't hit for you, it's maybe you haven't come across it. When you think about best-selling novelists, obviously her genres jumped or her, excuse me, her novels jumped to other genres. It wasn't just mystery readers compelling uh, those sales. It was obviously readership in general. And like, she has some mystery in and of herself, her, her lost time and her disappearance that happened and her reappearance mm -hmm. without explanation and all of that. So she was probably quite sensational um, back in the, her day and it probably did help her sales. But she has characters. I'm not a huge Miss Marple person. I'll just throw it out there straight away. I'm not a huge Miss Marple person. But I love Hercule Poirot. I think they really lend themselves to being on film. And I've loved them for a really long time. And I just, regardless of everything else, and she can be problematic when you look at some of her writing and some of her you know, contemporary attitude, but she did create a character that, for me, Hercule Poirot, that is, is a, is a lot, like, means a lot to me, has been, like, you know, I check in, and, and I feel like I know that character, and there's a slowness and an intricacy to some of the mysteries that 
it is, it's, I think that they would be extremely chilling at the time. And, you know, you look back now and you're, it's a little bit quaint by today's murderous mystery standards, but I just, there's something special there that you're a woman starting to write in the twenties and you become the best selling novelist in our recorded history thus far. It's really, it's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I'm curious about is could you lend her works to the same scrutiny of, could you tell it was a woman writing it? And I'm, I don't know. I, I'm not as familiar with Miss Marple. So like that would be her sort of flagship female character. So I'm not exactly sure how the characterizations were of that. And I know typically in Hercule Poirot novels, either the woman dies uh, murdered in some sort of way or she is the murderer which I think is interesting in and of itself too to have a female not always just be a poisoner but um, yeah. <laughs> like to commit violent murders yeah. you know because you think of women as more passive um, so I do find it interesting because I think but probably because at the time you wouldn't think oh well there's not going to be a female murderer so who which one of you is the one and then it's like, oh, twist, twist. Yeah. Well, maybe that's how she broke that ceiling, right? It, yeah. It's people wanted that. People wanted to see more, I don't know, realism. I, maybe that's that's very interesting. That's a that's you know another discussion. Um, just a couple of others. This one I know through name only, and Shannon, maybe you're more um, familiar with her, Octavia Butler. She's written up as being a talented artist ahead of her time. American sci-fi author Octavia Butler broke down barriers of race, sex, class, and genre with her writing. The first science fiction author to receive a MacArthur Fellowship, also known as the Genius Grant, Butler challenged the accepted conventions of her genre and pushed the boundaries to create truly remarkable works of fiction. Considered to be one of the trailblazers of speculative fiction, which is a large genre today, Butler's work is still praised for its examination of the Black experience, specifically the female experience in America. Oh, that's interesting. It is. I'm, and like, I'm the not first, personally familiar. I know her name, but I don't know her works. And reading that makes me want to know her works. Like the first science fiction author of any genre to receive the MacArthur Fellowship, but to be a Black female author writing sci-fi I I feel like I need to look her up and get into her works sort of straight away like that's gonna be my homework to myself I think that's good and I think that kind of follows that same line everyone should be doing that homework that same homework is read women listen to women's stories their songs watch women directed movies that's I mean Use this month if you were to use it as an exploration. <laughs> this is the time. Do the deep dive. And I, we've got tons of different people we're talking about here on this podcast today that you could easily type in their name and do a little search in our library and come up with a whole bunch of different things. And if you um, want a more personalized reading list of 
female authors, you can always fill out our May We Suggest form. And there is a little part for notes. So if you say that you specifically want to read, you know, Black female authors or include person of color uh, authors, et cetera, let us know these things so that we can really curate a list to you to help you with your reading journey, with your, you know, quote unquote homework, or with your discovery of things that maybe you haven't thought was for you or wouldn't be for you, like expand your horizons. I'm going to look up Octavia Butler when we get off this podcast, for example. The last author that I want to highlight before we before we highlight a problematic author, because we have to mention our last <sighs> author, but before we do, I know, before we do, um, <laughs> this author I find to be quite interesting. So her name is Jeanette Winterson. And she was an English author who made history with her 1985 coming of age novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, which tells the story of a young gay girl who is struggling to define herself and find acceptance within her community. Although the author herself resists the book's categorization as quote unquote, a lesbian novel, Oranges is often considered to be the first mainstream novel about gay women and it opened up several doors for LGBTQ plus authors that came after her. So when we think about that, 1985, that is not long ago. No, no, it's not really. And we have come a long way in terms of <laughs> what 2022 means for uh, persons who are in the LGBTQ community, authors who are characters that are, but it feels like we should be a little further along if we've had, you know, 37 it's years. The cogs of change, they go slow, so slow, so slowly. It's true. I read that exact same article you did because I, I remember thinking about that. That one is going to be my homework. <laughs> I want to definitely look more into that and, and find out, um, you know, oranges is, is not the only fruit. It's very interesting to me. That's, yeah, when you start out like that, for sure. I a comment that I wanted to to make sure that I remember to say um, when you were talking about science fiction, um, I did have a lady come into the library. She was looking to pick up books for her husband. Um, this was during pandemic and uh, he couldn't come up. He was compromised. And so she was at the library picking books for him. And she specifically said he does not read science fiction if it was written by a female. <laughs> I, I, I had to kind of school my features and not like have my mouth hanging wide open. And she goes, don't even, I already understand. She said, I know. But she said, I've tried to even trick him. And somehow he just knows. I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? And I thought, oh, I wonder how many people use that metric when they're picking books. You know, and, and is not just name only, and that kind of speaks to the pseudonym aspect of things as well. It's sort of like, if you know, do you just know? <laughs> do you, is the writing different? You know, um, I don't know. We're talking about mystery too. I we just want to. It'd be nice to do like a blind like, study somehow. Yeah, like, yeah, it just it would be interesting. I'm sure. Like, do people think that they know and they don't know, or do people really, yeah. really know? Like these are, I don't these are the questions I, that we have here on this podcast. <laughs> I was reading an article by the a gentleman named Terrence Rafferty, and he was talking about the um, mystery, murder mystery genre. And 
he was talking about female writers and he says they don't seem to believe in heroes as much as their male counterparts, which in some ways makes their storytelling a better fit for the times. And I thought that was kind of interesting because he says, when in doubt, have a man come in through the door with a gun in his hand. And today's crime writers are in doubt. They have a woman come through the door with a passive aggressive zinger on her lips instead. <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, because we've changed, is that, you know, no longer are the the days of old, the, the shop, put your hands up, you know, it, yeah. that doesn't the work hero. anymore. Yeah. So a female author that we have to mention based on accolades, sales, public consciousness is JK Rowling. Broke a lot of records, yeah. inspired a lot of children to start reading. She is the first and only billionaire author, which is interesting um she's one of the most widely read female authors in history and she is often credited according to this bbc article which they might be a little biased being bbc <laughs> with revitalizing children's literature but i think that that's fair as a child myself in the late 90s i was reading harry potter i was going to the midnight release parties my parents would take me and i would get my little book as an 11 12 13 year old and be so excited to have it and to go to those little things so i think in some ways it's hard to separate art and character from a person that you might not agree with politically anymore and I know that that might even be hot button for me to suggest that it is political and not you know a human rights issue and I I don't mean to be uh dismissive to anyone who um is hurt by how she identifies you know different members of the community but as a woman author and what she did accomplish um with her Harry Potter series and now without her and beyond her um, is something that we had to note here on this podcast about uh, women authors because because we do. Yeah, I agree. And I think that she has earned that. I do think she revolutionized children's reading for her time. Um, and also, too, I think it's important to note she is another one um, that was encouraged to have a more ambiguous name. And so they said that a female writer would be off-putting for what she was trying to, to put out there, which I think was very interesting. You're speaking about, you know, 1985 as not that long ago. Well, 97 is even less. Yeah. Potter is <laughs> even less. And it was still... JK was still being used instead of Joanne, which is yeah. very feminine. And I, you so know that what? both me, boys that... and girls would read it because girls seem to care a little bit less. Magic, uh, male character being the lead, uh, all of those things were, I'm sure, helped sell the book to publishers because they thought this is a book that we can sell to a child audience, not a female child audience or a male child audience, but to a child audience. And it, I mean, a lot of people feel a very particular softness for the Harry Potter world and fandom. And it's probably very difficult for them to reconcile with some of the uh, takes that she has these days publicly and, and what that might mean for her legacy 50, 100 years from now, 
would be interesting if we were around to see it. I might see 50 years, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Um, I, I think that it won't change her place in history. I, I, if you, we were talking about, you know, how things have changed from 1650 for Anne Bradstreet and then to, let's say, even Virginia Woolf um, in a couple hundred years. I mean, then we're moving on from like 1700s to 2020, let's say. Yeah. That's amazing to be a billionaire author, the yeah. first. Like, look how far women have come. That's amazing. Yeah. Women in literature, that's leaps and bounds over what it used to be. So if- And the know, power that they have now. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And I think despite all the controversy, feather in the cap for women. Yeah. It, it, there's no way around it. it. I mean, that's pretty successful. That's wonderful. It's a woman author doing amazing things with- reaching the public with her stories wonderful i applaud it yeah end of story <laughs> <laughs> so true um so shannon wanted to highlight a um book that some might be interested if if you've made it this far in our podcasting conversation True, and it's a it might fit with the jk rowling maybe controversy a little bit um I, I don't know that I can say the title of this book on the podcast, which oh. is very interesting, but I will um, cite the author. Her name is Inga Muschio. And uh, if you look her up, um, the subtitle is A Declaration of Independence. And um, it's it was absolutely stunning to me, jaw dropping when I read it the first time I gave it to my daughters to read. I wanted everyone in the world to read it. And it, it's not necessarily a feminist manifesto. Um, it definitely has a feminist flair. Oh, is it the C one? It's the C one. Yeah. And it, <laughs> because I couldn't not mention it when we're talking about women in literature because she really talks about all the different women that have played a part in history. And since we're in women's history month, it it's worth a, a read. I think everyone should read it. I think it should just be there um, as part of an education, let's say. So I highly recommend that read. Uh, that was pivotal Controversial, for me. Shannon. Such, I know, such I know. language I adjacent. <laughs> That's all right. Still has to come up. Still has to come up. And before we get into our reading and watching and listening, we want to give a shout out to Red Your Public Library's first librarian, who was Ina Green, a late teenage like woman who she's 17. Yeah, who was our first librarian who helped make the library in Red Deer a thing. And so now we are, I think we are. We were established 1914, I do want to say. So we are now 100 plus years past the legacy that she has built for us and for this community. So when you're talking about women in and around literature, we have to say Ina Green. Thanks. Thanks hey, for being here. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's good. She brought us the books. Thank you. Yeah. 
before Red Deer was even a city or no, just the year after the year before or the year after I always get confused year after 1913 is Red Deer or 1915 is Red Deer. That is, I don't know. Tell us listeners, <laughs> tell us <laughs> listeners of Red Deer. <laughs> I always get confused. I know that it's either the year before or the year after and I have a 50, 50 shot and I'm taking both. It's either the year before or the year after. <laughs> Good work, good work. I support that. So before we go, Shannon, what are you reading, watching, and listening to these days? Yeah, full slate of things. I after our uh podcast in January, it was my challenge to myself to make sure I I was at 52 books for the year, which I don't normally keep track. So I have no idea if I am gonna hit that or not. I never ever kept track before it's against sort of my nature but this time this year (laughs) I'm keeping track and so I'm I'm kind of trying to make a book a week so this week I am (laughs) reading um actually I'm reading the menopause manifesto oh by Um, Jen Gunter yes yeah and she did the what the vagina bible I think very interesting reading she's she is a Canadian doctor, OBGYN, and I love the fact that she speaks from that Canadian vibe. Like she's yeah. definitely talks about different, you know, treatments available in different places and how healthcare systems work. But um, for the most part, it's it's from a Canadian based place, and I love it. And it's very easy to read. There is sciencey bits in it, but it's not like <laughs> overwhelming. I love it. It's not dry. She's she's kept my attention. And no, have you? Did you read her first book, The Vagina Bible, as well? I did. Yeah, highly readable. Yeah. And as I also read it as a woman, you're like, why didn't I know these things about yeah. the body that I walk around in? On like honestly, so she is out there doing the work and giving it yeah. to you know the audience in ways that one they can engage with, and two that they can understand and move forward. perfect for women's history month (laughs) yeah and it has a bit of a feminist vibe to it which I love it and so steeped in that right now so it's it's perfect reading for this month um and then what am I listening to um I'm listening to an audiobook um why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum excellent book absolutely excellent book i it's an old book but she just did a new update and we have it in our libby uh the updated version of very 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 interesting deep dive into racism and race in our culture and and we've a lot of people are saying well it's not really a thing anymore well yeah obviously it is and Mm -hmm. she has all the data and all the research and all the reasons why it's still a thing and it kind of goes back to the thing we were talking about it's unconscious some of the biases we still hold and we don't even realize we have them and they're just there they're simmering under the surface and it's part of our culture and we we need to work through that still lots of yeah so that's been very good you watching anything you're a non-watcher no i'm usually a (laughs) non-watcher but my son who when this series came out he was too young and I told him he's not allowed to watch it and so he decided to show up in the living room the other day and say hey I think I'm old enough to watch this show you should watch it with me and I went all right that sounds great let's sit and watch this show together this you know family feel-good vibes well it's the walking dead (laughs) 
So I am now <laughs> embracing The Walking Dead with my of age son. <laughs> I sit there mostly with my hands over my eyes, waiting for the next scare to happen. Um, very interesting. I don't know where I was in the 10 years that it was, you know, in real time. But it's been enjoyable and I enjoy watching it with him. So yeah. Oh, nice. That's the team. Yeah, it's good. Um, what about you? I, you I reread um, Karen Robard's series, Dr. Charlotte Stone series, and I probably mm. hadn't read them since they came out new, which I think was like 2012, 13, and 14, and 15. It's a four book series. And the other day, well, last week, I was looking at the first one. I was like, oh, I'm going to see if it's still like if it still is a favorite right because like I know you're not a rereader but I am and I was just so gonna long. say absolutely not I hope it turned out well for you <laughs> I have such like a book hangover because I loved it so much I read all four books last week which has been a long time since I was able to read more than one or two books in a week I read all four books last Highly week. Motivated. Yeah, I finished the fourth one on Saturday morning and I literally did not do know what to do with myself the rest of Saturday. I just wanted to read more and be in it. And I was just, I was, I'm, I'm mourning its loss. So, wow. That I speaks know. highly of a book when you've A, reread it and B, it still does that to you. Yeah. Wow. I'm super into it. Um, it was just, Impressive. it was just so good. It was just so good. <laughs> um, for watching, I went to the theater this weekend and I saw the Batman and Ooh. it was excellent. I could not recommend it enough. You have to know sort of what you're getting into. You're getting a dark, gritty Batman story. Um, it gave me sort of the comics vibe. It was detective ish it had beautiful cinematography the score just really was something um I would say that it had sort of a tone of what if like the Zodiac do you remember the movie Zodiac from a while back what if that were like a superhero movie and instead of just the regular detectives you had Batman it's just I loved it. I loved the color palette. He was perfectly cast, Robert Pattinson, as Batman. You see him way more as Batman than you do as Bruce Wayne in this one. It's definitely the Batman's movie. Um, Everyone is just, it was very perfectly cast. Um, Catwoman was like Catwoman from the comics. Her backstory was, I whispered to my friend, I said, oh, I don't like this one part. And I was like, they're, they're screwing up her backstory. And then when it was revealed what was going on, I was like, oh, it's perfect. It's exactly her backstory and what it's supposed to be. So I just, I love it. Can't recommend it enough. It is three hours. So settle in if you are headed to the theater. <laughs> Quick and, question. Masking? Yeah. Was it a thing? I haven't been to the theater in forever. I was masking um, just because I feel more comfortable about it. I went to it on an off time as well. I went noon on a Sunday. So it oh, was, excellent. there was maybe six other like grouplets of people in there. So it was very spread out. Of those six grouplets, one other grouplet was wearing masks. Um, 
but generally speaking, I didn't feel like I was, I was concerned because it's been a long time and you have those anxieties about like going back to life and, and whatnot. Yeah. But like, I don't know that I'm ready to go at seven o'clock on a Friday, to the theater. <laughs> um, but luckily they did offer it in multiple theaters, multiple times. You can choose your seats. They are still blocking off seats around people. Oh, okay. um, nice. So yeah, it was, it was a good experience and I really, I loved the movie. And then I'm back into my alien audio book self. <laughs> so um, I have alien into Char. I'm going to really butcher the name Charbidus maybe. Um, written mm. by Alex White. I'm listening to it on Audible. It's one of their included in Audible uh, titles. And I haven't even, I'm like halfway through it. I'm not even seen or heard an alien yet, but I feel like they're oh. building up towards something and I'm, I'm keen because I love them. Okay. It better <laughs> be good. Better I give you so. what you want. I hope so. It's been a while. So I just, I always just want to be in the alien universe, not like myself personally, but like, I want to be watching from a safe distance. (laughs) That's a good idea. So thank you all for joining us today in this conversation. As always, you can tweet Shannon and I, Um, Shannon's at S. S. Shan Laron. I will get it right eventually. Shan Laron. And I am at what CCs, or you can tweet the library at RDPL. Um, let us know if you're got any homework for this Women's History slash International Women's Day month. Um, any or if we had stuff that we forgot or really yes. didn't talk about, like or I'm we're curious, wrong about. what did I miss? Or we're wrong yes. about. <laughs> yes. Right. Like or you disagree? Yeah. <laughs> so let us know. Um, as always, it's been a pleasure. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.